0: Hi there, this is Pastor Aaron of Fairview Cornerstone Baptist Church and we pray that through the preaching of God's word that you were encouraged and pointed to Christ, our glorious Savior. If you have any questions or comments, uh, you can find us at www.fairviewcornerstone.com and uh, please write to us. We'd love to uh, hear any questions or comments. We pray the Lord encourage you through this sermon. All right. Thank you, children, for sharing that with us. Because Jesus said, "From the mouth of children, He's ordained praise." And uh, what a joy to have so many little ones here. Thank you. I'll invite you to turn with me in your Bible to uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Just want to welcome you if you're visiting this morning, and it's great to have all of you here together. This morning we um, are going to be looking at a number of passages, but we will start here in Corinthians, where the Apostle Paul records for us the, the resurrection from, even as he testifies to it years later after Christ has already ascended into heaven. Paul tells us uh, the account as well. So I invite you to stand with me, and we will read from the Word of God together. 1 Corinthians 15, starting at verse 1. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preach to you, on the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believed. Let's just ask the Lord for his help as we look at his word together. Lord God in heaven, we, we know, Father, that from the beginning, it was your spoken word that brought light into the darkness. It was your spoken word that... Brought into existence the planets and the sea and the sky and the birds and the animals, Lord. Father, and then with tender care you formed man from the dust of the earth and breathed into him the breath of life, Lord. And even though we quickly rebelled against you, we quickly turned our back on you as our creator, as our king, that you did not forsake us but rather you set into motion a plan of redemption, a plan of reconciliation through your Son, where you would take our shame, our guilt upon yourself, Lord, and you would bear it on the cross. But, Lord, we rejoice this morning that we do not serve merely a historical Jesus who once lived and died but we serve a Lord who has risen again and reigns forevermore. And I pray that you would help our hearts to rejoice at that news. Give us understanding as we look at your word. Give us attentive hearts, Lord, that we would be changed by your spoken word this morning. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. may be seated. So this morning I want us to think about not only the details of what happened as we've read the account of Christ's resurrection, but I want us to think about the implications of his resurrection. What does it mean that we have a risen Savior? How does that change things for us and for the rest of humanity? What are the implications of a risen Savior? Now, of course, uh, in fact, I just saw this past week, Tim Keller came out with a book Uh, That is 50 reasons or 50 uh, things that that, uh, the resurrection changes. I was hoping to get through five this morning. So, of course, we're not going to exhaust all of the glorious implications of a risen Savior. I don't think it would even be right to say that we will see the tip of the iceberg, maybe more like the uh, snowflake that sits on the tip of the iceberg we will get to examine this morning and see some of these glorious implications of having a risen Savior. This sets Christianity apart from all the other religions of the world. Many claim prophets, many claim teachers, but all of their prophets died and have been dead since. You could think of Muhammad, you could think of Buddha, you could think of Joseph Smith. While they all claim divine revelation, only Jesus Christ came out of the grave and never tasted death again. And so we can rejoice this morning that we serve the one true God. And my intent is not to convince you of the resurrection. I think if you read the Apostle Paul's account here and what had happened, that Christ appeared, not only to one or two men, but we're told to hundreds of people witnessed Christ in his resurrected form. And so I'm not going to try to convince you that he is risen. I think the evidence speaks for itself, but rather let us think what it means that he has indeed risen. And so as I said, I hope we have time to get through five implications of a risen savior this morning. First of all, and these aren't in a specific order, some of them come from what Paul is saying here and we'll jump around a bit, so just to give you a heads up. First of all, the first implication of serving a risen savior is that Jesus has ultimate power over all things. Jesus has ultimate power over all things because he has went into our greatest enemy, death itself, sin that has condemned us all and enslaved us. Jesus Christ has conquered these, the worst of our enemies as humanity, and if he has conquered these, then there is nothing left to be conquered. He reigns supreme over all There is no force on earth. There is no government. There is no devil in hell. There is no depraved sinner that can thwart the will of this Savior. He reigns supreme because He has risen from the dead. Hebrews 1 verse 3 tells us after making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. When a ruler sits down, it indicates that he has finished his work. He is at peace. The the work of his reigning has been completed. And, And so Jesus, the imagery of him sitting down at the right hand of the majesty on high, the author of Hebrews tells us, is that Christ is indeed reigning today. In Revelation, as the risen Christ comes to the apostle John on the island of Patmos and reveals his glory to this Persecuted apostle who's been exiled there. And he, he gives him the revelation. He tells John in Revelation 3:1, 1, the one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne, as I also conquered and sat down with my Father on his throne. Christ is over all things as the risen Savior. And there are so many passages, but here's another one from Philippians 2:9. Paul writing again says, Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. Every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. Christ is our risen Lord, and one of the implications of this is that he is king. He reigns over all things. You could imagine, I'm sorry to bring up skiing this morning. I know we're not really wanting to think more about winter, but you could imagine that you're going to a ski hill or to a mountain to ski And as you reach the top of the mountain, you see all the various trails that you can go down. And I remember as a kid, you would go and and first of all, you would start on the bunny hill and then you would try the next level up of the slopes, the the green hill and then the blue. But there was always this one that was kind of looming over you, the black diamond. The black diamond was the most terrifying and only those who were very confident in what they were doing would go down the black diamond. But once you made it down that hill, the the most difficult hill on on the slopes, once you mastered that, everything else was open. Everything else was, was fine because you knew that you had conquered the most difficult run on the hill. And so everything else was under that. if you think of jesus christ as well that he has conquered the worst of the hills he has already defeated the worst and so everything else falls under his victory everything rulers the economy our governments global strife disease all of these things fall under the rule of christ and he is above them all now sometimes we hear things like well You can do anything or just believe and anything is possible. And uh, sadly, a lot of kids shows love to promote this kind of humanistic theology that if you just believe, you can do anything. But can we replace our stony hearts with hearts that love God and walk in obedience to His Word? Can we rescue our souls from the condemnation of hell? In fact, Jesus would tell us we can't even make one hair on our head go gray, much less change our sinful nature into that of spiritual life. No, we see that we most desperately need one who has conquered, one who is reigning because we are not able to deliver ourselves from our condition. We need someone who has conquered the slope. And as we look to Christ it is, it is as though he scoops us up in his arms and he navigates the slopes for us and we get, to, we get to take part of the joy and the experience of that, but it is by his power and strength that we must press on. You think of the story of David and Goliath and a lot of you kids know this story, right? What happens with David and Goliath? Any of the kids out there listening? <laughs> Did, did uh, David run away from Goliath, or did he fight Goliath and defeat him? Any of the kids? No? Who won between David and Goliath? Uh, someone's up. David, didn't he? And sometimes we think of that as a kind of self-motivation story of how we need to be like David, but really it's a picture of Christ, is it not? We, if anyone in that story, are the soldiers shaking in their armor, doubting the hand of God, doubting that that this enemy can actually be defeated, and we're ready to, to submit ourselves to a lifetime of slavery to this enemy. But then we look and we see Christ take the field on our behalf. He stands against the giant that we would not dare step out against. And Christ defeats him on our behalf. We rejoice in the victory, but it is Christ who has won the battle for us. He is our David on the field of battle, defeating the enemy that we cannot. And so that is the first implication. The second implication of a risen Savior is that we are now justified before God forever. We are now justified before God forever. The glorious news of our deliverance, of our forgiveness, that is finished once for all. Paul says in Romans 4:22, he says, "That is why faith was counted. He's speaking of Abraham's faith. That was why faith was counted to him as righteousness. But the words that was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him, who, raised, who was raised from the dead, Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Do you see what Paul is doing? He's saying, as we believe upon Christ, that he was delivered for what? for our trespasses to pay for our sin to make atonement for our guilt before God but he was raised for our justification our our justification was finished at the resurrection and the payment that Christ offered to the father was accepted and was pleasing to the father the justification as you probably know as a legal term, it is to be declared innocent, to be declared not guilty without sin. An amazing realization for those who believe upon Christ that we are counted righteous in Him as though we had lived His sinless life, as though we had perfectly walked in obedience to the Father. His perfection is imputed to us by faith alone. It is not something that we work to to receive and it is not something that we work to maintain justification through the resurrection of Christ oftentimes we understand that becoming a christian and 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 being saved is is a is a an act of faith when we receive Christ's finished work but then we oftentimes turn sanctification our our abiding in the Lord as though something we must maintain on our own strength. And while we certainly have a role to play, if you begin to understand that the payment for our sin was totally paid for at the cross, there is no payment left, then you don't have to work to finish Paying it off. It isn't like Jesus just gave us a down payment for the house and then we have to carry on the mortgage payments. No, He, he paid the full price of our sin at Calvary, and His resurrection is evidence that it is finished. I was thinking of uh, a man like Martin Luther who would hate the holiness of God because he knew that a holy God would surely condemn him. And he tried everything to earn his righteousness. He became a monk. He he deprived himself of all kinds of pleasures in this life. But then one day when he was reading the book of Romans and comes across Paul's writing that the righteous shall live by faith, the world opened up and he began to realize that we are not able to earn our righteousness, our justification. It is a gift through Christ that he has achieved for us in his dying and rising you think of men like Paul who labored to to please God, to obey the law, Pharisee of Pharisees. But then when Christ encounters him and knocks him off of his horse and reveals himself to him, Paul begins to understand that Christ is the fulfillment of all of God's law and righteousness, and we receive it by faith alone. I wonder this morning, do you live your life as a condemned criminal? Or as a loved child? Do you see yourself as someone who God is generally upset with, generally displeased with, generally angry towards? Or have you understood that because of Christ, if you are looking to Jesus, that you are a beloved child who has been made perfect because of Christ? that his love and his affection upon you is not based upon your performance. It is based upon the performance of Christ, which he finished at the cross. And so we don't live our lives to earn the favor of God. We begin to understand that he is already pleased with us because of what Christ has done. And it is the same for our children that I tell my boys that you're always going to be my son. You'll make daddy angry, you'll disobey daddy, but no matter what, you are my son and I love you. Nothing will change that. And as a Christian, when you begin to understand that that is your identity in Christ, you are counted as a child, not just a worker, not just a hired hand, not just a a, a laborer, but you are a child of God, brought into his family through Christ, forgiven, forgiven, Yes, we make mistakes. Yes, we need to confess our sin. But it is never so that we might gain back our, our identity as children. It is we approach the throne of grace knowing that it has been opened through Christ. But not only that, are you quick to forgive? Are you quick to forgive? Because if you really begin to understand what Jesus has given to us through the cross... You can't hold on to anger and resentment and, and pride because how can you refuse to forgive someone for oftentimes a minor thing? I mean, the worst arguments that my wife and I get into are of the most ridiculous things, right? And I don't know how that works, but you look at the, the issue that we're upset about and this is silly. Like, it's not even worth mentioning in here. I'm so upset about it, you know, uh, and yet we, we feel like we can't forgive but then we understand what Christ has given to us, and we should be the most ready to forgive. In fact, Jesus would tell us a parable about this, and I'll just reference it in in, uh, Matthew 18. And I'm sure you've heard of this parable before, but Jesus, one of his, uh, Peter, comes to him and says, How many times should I forgive my brother? As many as seven times. So that's a good guess by Peter. Seven is the number of perfection in the Jewish mind. It was the number of completeness. It's a good, a good guess by Peter. But then Jesus says, no, I do not say seven times, but 77 times, or some say 70 times seven. And Jesus tells a parable of a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants, and he began to bring the servants in who owed him money. And there was one who owed him 10,000 talents thousands and thousands and millions of dollars the servant owed him and the servant couldn't pay so the master says to him with his wife and children that they should be put into prison because he could not pay his debt and so the servant we find in verse 26 falls to his knees imploring him have patience with me i will pay you everything and out of pity for him we're told the master of the servant released him and forgave the debt an amazing picture of forgiveness. This king, with no, no obligation to forgive the man, decides to have mercy. But then we're told in verse 28, but when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii, a few days wages. And this man's going to go and try to collect his debts now after being forgiven millions of dollars. He's going to get upset about a a Timmy's coffee you know and he's going to tell this guy I, I bought you a coffee you owe me another one and, and and we see what happens is he gets upset with him begins to choke him saying pay what you owe so his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him have patience with me I will pay you he refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt when his fellow servants saw what had taken place they were greatly distressed and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place Then his master summoned him and said, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should you not have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? In in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay his debt. So also, Jesus says, my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. And so in the forgiveness of Christ, we see also an example of how we should relate to one another. So we see that the resurrection of Christ is, it it reminds us and teaches us that Jesus is Lord over all. It speaks of our justification that is once for all we are forgiven in Christ. The payment has been made. Thirdly, then, is that we will also be sanctified. We will be sanctified. That means that we will be made like Christ. We will be made holy as he himself is holy from one degree to the next because Christ has risen. Romans 6, I think probably is one of the clearest passages that that Paul shows us the connection between the death of Christ and our own death to sin and then his resurrection and our own walking in newness of life. Paul tells us how can we who died to sin still live in it, Romans 6.1. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Our sanctification is is rooted in the fact that Christ rose from the dead. And Paul says, just as you are dead to sin and, and and now are in Christ, so you will walk in newness of life as Jesus Himself rose from the dead. And I think as much as I respect many of my, my Presbyterian brothers who do not like to to use as much water in baptism as we do. I love the picture of how baptism portrays exactly what Paul is talking about, the burying of our old way, our old nature in the water, identifying with the death of Christ, and then as we come up out of the water, it is the picture of that resurrected life, walking in the newness of life. This happens because Christ has indeed risen from the dead. One more verse from Paul on our sanctification. He says, if the Spirit, this is Romans 8, 11, if the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit who dwells in you. And so we see there that the, it is the Spirit of God, And we see that the triune God at work in the resurrection of Christ, you have God the Father planning the resurrection of Christ, commissioning the Spirit of God to go forth and to bring Christ back to life. And it is the Spirit of God who, we're told, raises Jesus from the dead. And Paul says that same Spirit... When you are born again, he takes up residence within you. You become an earthly temple of the living God, and he will bring life to your bodies just as he brought life to Christ. That is such an encouragement if you're like me and you, you look at yourself some mornings and you just feel like, I'm going backwards. I'm going backwards. My, de- my desire for the word, my desire for prayer, my, my love for my family is declining And you can sometimes be tempted to despair and just feel like, I'm a failure. I'm a failure of a Christian. But then you remember a verse like this that he said, just as his spirit has raised Christ from the dead, so he will give life to my mortal body. And let us rejoice in that. Let us plead with God that that would be a reality in our life. We read the First Corinthians 15 there, and thinking about, and I know these are massive subjects that we can't possibly hope to exhaust this morning, but you think about our sanctification, and, and you think, well, sa- sanctification is, is, is one of these areas that we too are called to work and to be disciplined and to, to put off sin and to, to set aside the, the weight that entangles us. Of sin. And yet at the same time, we, we know that it is the power of God that has promised to do this work in us and that to, to bring it to completion. So there's this tension. But you see what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15.10. He brings it together beautifully. He says that he works harder than any of the other apostles. You see Paul laboring for the gospel. But then Paul says, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. And Paul understood that yes, he is working. Maybe you're like me and you have to set your alarm clock uh, about 15 feet from the bed so that when it goes off and you're afraid that the children are going to wake up so you get out of bed quickly and you rush to the alarm clock so that you're awake so that you can spend some time in the word of God because if I put it too close to the bed, I know exactly what will happen. I will turn it off, I will get back in bed, and I will wake up an hour later. And so there's this fight, there's this... Declaring war on our flesh, but at the same time knowing that it is by the power of God's Spirit that we are sanctified. And so, then, fourthly, and I know we're running out of time, but we'll wind down here. Fourthly, a fourth implication of a risen Savior is that Judgment Day is approaching, Judgment Day is coming. And interestingly, if you look at the book of Acts and the way that the apostles preached the gospel to the various towns that they came to, one in particular, in Acts 10, we have the story of Peter, and he has just had the incredible vision. and he has now gone to the, the house, Cornelius, and he's preaching to them. And we find in Acts 10:34, listen to what Paul tells them in regards to this gospel. Uh, sorry, Peter tells them. This is Acts ten thirty four. Peter opened his mouth and said, Truly, I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. As for the word that he sent to Israel, preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all. You yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee, after the baptism of That John proclaimed, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And we are witnesses of all that he did, both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree, but God raised him on the third day and made him to appear, not to all the people, but to us who had been chosen by God as witnesses who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. Now listen to what he tells them about this gospel. He says, And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be the judge of the living and the dead. To him all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. The implication of Christ rising from the dead is not only that he is Lord over all, but he is also going to judge the living and the dead. Judgment day is approaching, and it is now, uh, every, with every passing second, it is a second closer than it was a second before. Every day we are one day closer to the judgment of Christ when we will stand before him and give an account and all humanity will stand. There will be no bribery. There will be no secrecy. There will be no masks on people's faces. Everything will be exposed before Christ and he will judge. I was listening to some men uh, in a podcast this week and they were talking about culturally how the culture responds to different Christian holidays. And they made the point that Christmas, uh, generally, the, the, our culture seems okay with a baby in a manger. We will walk through the malls and hear Christmas songs about Mary and Joseph and the angels singing and peace on earth. And we'll hear these things even in very secular organizations at Christmas time. But when we come to Easter, Christ is gone, isn't he? There is no, oftentimes in secular places, a risen Savior. And they made the point that we can control a baby in a manger. We can, we can move him from one place to another without him being able to do anything about it. And in fact, babies don't speak, so this is a, this is a Savior who can't even speak. We're okay with that kind of king. But even the culture understands what it means if Jesus rose from the dead. They understand the implications of a risen Savior. If he has indeed risen from the dead, we are going to answer to him. He is Lord over all. I have to be, I have to be prepared to encounter this king if he has risen from the dead. And so we don't hear a lot about The resurrection of christ we would rather entertain ourselves with fuzzy bunnies and chocolate and and all kinds of silliness so that we can avoid the reality that is coming with every passing day we will stand before this king and we will give an account before him and oh that we would be ready oh that we would be found in christ because only in him will we be able to stand and not consumed by the glory of god And fifthly, we'll close with this fifth implication of the risen Savior. And oh, it is glorious for us. And it is the assurance of a new heavens and a new earth and the glorification of our bodies. This is an implication of Christ rising from the dead, that he stands as the first of a great harvest to come. He stands as the unique one now in heaven with a glorified body. Christ rose from the dead not just spiritually but physically with a glorified body and he is still in that glorified body in heaven. He has been in heaven in his physical form glorified for over 2,000 years now. And he will remain so forevermore. And he is a declaration to all the angels, to all the saints that are gathering there before the throne, that one day we will be like him. We will be changed and all of creation with him. He is the first fruit of a great harvest to come. Now my mom uh, would always try to grow a new tree in our yard. And Poor mom, you know, if it wasn't the frost or us kids wrecking it, the cows would get out and eat it. And, you know, it'd be like, oh, some, some mountain ash. This is delicious. Let's see what else we can find around here. And they would go and, and find the little maple tree that mom had planted. The cows would eat that one off. And, and I remember one tree specifically. It was a little crabapple tree. She always wanted a crabapple tree. And I think it was me. I could blame my brother, but I think it was me. I was mowing the grass and accidentally ran over the crabapple tree and actually uprooted it completely and we felt really bad my brother and i were trying to get into gardening at the time mum had given us a corner of the garden and so i thought well why not we could we could plant it in our garden and we'll water it we'll take care of it and who knows maybe maybe there's still hope for this tree and you know what happened is after a few years that little tree sat in the ground but all of a sudden it started to bud leaves And we thought that was exciting, the leaves. I mean, that was kind of the most we were hoping for was at least some leaves to grow on the tree. But then after a few more years, some flowers started to grow. And this was really exciting that now we have flowers on this little crabapple tree that was once, it would seem so dead. And then a a few summers ago, I was back, and I walked over where this tree is sitting there. It's quite large now, a lot taller than me. And there's little apples on it. And I just... I look at that little tree, and I think that is a picture of the work of Christ, is it not? Are we not like that little tree laying out in the desert, the beating sun coming down upon us with no hope of bearing fruit, but Jesus, in his mercy and grace, picks us up as a wild olive branch, Paul would say, and he grafts us into the trunk, the life that God has poured out through Abraham, we are grafted into the tree that we would bear fruit for the kingdom. And we who look to be most fruitless in the world, we are given fruit. But not only that, we think of Christ as the first fruit, that spiritually we are reborn, but we are still waiting for the final stage, the glorification of all things. And in that way, it is as though Jesus... Is that first apple on the tree, And when you see one, you think, OK, if there's one, there's a good chance there's a lot more to follow. And that is the picture of Christ that he has been glorified, and he is our hope of a new heavens and a new earth that is coming. A few quick passages, First Corinthians 15:20, later on in First in Corinthians. Fifteen. I I love the, uh, the chapter of 1 Corinthians. Paul goes right from Genesis to glorification. But in verse 20, he writes this. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by one man came death, by a man has also come the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the first fruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he's put all of his enemies under his feet. And the last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subject under his feet. When it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he is accepted who put all things in subjection under him. And when all things are subjected to him, when the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all. And oh, we think of Christ, and we feel the sting of our sin. We feel the hopelessness of economies and governments that are filled with deceit and wickedness. We taste death to varying degrees in the horror of this unnatural enemy that came upon humanity because of our fall. But we see in Christ a day coming when this will all be wiped away. We will be changed to be like him. The heavens and the earth, we're told, will be caught up in the new creation. And so you could think of it in many ways as You know, the first few weeks of April, had a long winter. You start to wonder if we're ever going to see a blade of green grass again. And then you get this little window of beautiful weather, and the walking trail is dry, and you can ride your bikes, and you're putting snow gear away, and then you get this dump of snow, and it's like, what is going on? And you could imagine the apostles having experienced the light of God for those years while Christ walked with them and seeing the miracles and the power that Jesus walked with and then him being crucified and then ascending to the Father and telling them, I will come back and I will finish what I've started. And so we're kind of, as Christians, in this season of what feels like winter, but we know the time is right. Summer is coming and it will not leave when it comes again. And so Christ is coming, and he will finish what he began. So let us pray, and I'll invite you to stand as we close. Uh, God in heaven, we are desperate for your help, Lord, that you would continue to enable us to fight the good fight of faith, Lord. When we look around, and there seems to be endless pain, endless things to be discouraged about. It would seem that hearts grow cold as opposed to receiving the good news of what Christ has done. But Lord, we know that you are not finished and that you will surely bring about all that you have said because you've already done the great work of dying, of taking our shame and rising again. Help us to walk with endurance. Help us to conquer, Lord, in this season of night as we wait for the dawning of the sun of Righteousness. Thank you for these dear people. I pray you bless them, God. And if there are those this morning that have not called upon Christ for the forgiveness of sins, would you open their eyes to what he has done, what he is offering, even now on Easter Sunday, that, that souls who are dead in the dungeons of sin would rise and see the light of the gospel. God, would you save them, we pray, for your namesake. In Jesus' name, we ask these things. Amen. I invite the ushers to come forward and... Uh, Thank you for tuning in today to the sermon uh, preached at Fairview Cornerstone Baptist Church. And again, if you have any questions or comments, we'd love to hear from you. You can write to us at church at fairviewcornerstone.com. God bless.